in my experience over the past 20, 25 years, I've started to feel the shift. And a lot of that has to do with the advocacy of Indigenous curators and artists working with museums to try and push them towards, you know, more diverse voices and perspectives looking at this shared history. That's the voice of Kent Monkman, a leading artist who's been at the vanguard of contemporary art, Indigenous issues, and museums. He's in the spotlight in this, the first of a four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with Canada's The Gardner Museum and the institution's Community Art Space, a platform for experimentation and socially engaged art. I'm Hurag Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movement's podcast from Hyperallergic. One of the reasons I've been very excited to bring you this mini-series is because this small museum was influential in my own life. Located in downtown Toronto, at the edge of the University of Toronto campus where I went to college, I often visited the special institution during the long stretch of hours between classes. I remember the entrance at the time had a large water feature and various objects atop podiums. There I encountered ceramics of the ancient Americas, the quirky allure of mice and porcelain, colorful apothecary jars from the Renaissance. It felt incredible as the gardener exposed me to new worlds that were previously relegated to the decorative arts wings of museums at the time. It was refreshing to see an institution that fully embraced clay, porcelain, and ceramics. It definitely left an impression. First, Monkman. In 2015, the gardener hosted an exhibition by the artist titled The Rise and Fall of Civilization. It was a site-specific installation about the near extinction of the American bison in the 19th century. It was a time when millions of these large mammals were slaughtered by the US government and settlers until their numbers were reduced to just a few hundred by the turn of the century. For Monkman's installation, he created a gallery-sized buffalo jump, with two bison standing atop a cliff beside a sculpture of Miss Chief, pronounced mischief, of course, which is the artist's alter ego. The smashed ceramics at the base of the cliff pointed to the buildup of bones often found at the bottom of such formations, but it also refers to bone ash, which is used to make bone china, something that permeates the gardener's own collection. Making that connection between the history of Native Americans or First Nations people and the contemporary world is the type of layered meaning that typifies Monkman's best work. I started our conversation at his studio in Toronto by discussing his own early experiences at museums. My interest in museums began when I was a kid. I was one of maybe just a handful of Indigenous kids in my school, and I would go on these school trips with, you know, non-Indigenous people, people, basically white kids, mm -hmm. to the Manitoba Museum, and we would go and see these dioramas of Indigenous people kind of frozen in time. So I had kind of mixed feelings about those dioramas. On one hand, you know, I found them fascinating. And then I would step outside the museum onto the main street in Winnipeg, which in 1970s had a pretty brutal skid row. So indigenous people tumbling out of the bars, drunk in the middle of the day. And, you know, I just remember the experience of my classmates kind of looking at me for some kind of answer between, you know, how do you reconcile like what's in the museum and what's on the street? That stayed with me. And, you know, later as 
an artist, professional painter. When I started to look at the art history, the images that were painted in North America by the settler artists, you know, of indigenous subjects, I started to realize that there were gaps in their story. And that's when I started to really challenge the subjectivity of their paintings. And then that led me back to the museum again, because the museums were responsible for upholding these these ideas from the 19th century, which kind of broke into a few themes, one of them being that indigenous people didn't exist unless they existed in this kind of pre-contact idyllic state. And that was what, what was happening with the dioramas too, is like, here's this idealized moment of your culture in a museum. And there was nothing telling the story between what happened after colonization to the present. So there was nothing in the museum that spoke about the colonial policies and how they you know, wreaked havoc in our communities, how they destroyed our cultures and, and communities. You know, there was nothing about residential schools. Right. There was nothing about the, uh, the colonial policies of basically incarcerating Indigenous people onto reserves or reservations. So there were many gaps in the story. And you know, the official story of North America, as told through our museums, still has these major gaps. Right. And so this is what I've really said about trying to address with my work, with my paintings, my installations, film and video work and performance work, is to look for all of these gaps. And there's so many. And it really has been about erasure. It's been about dispossession. And the colonial policies have been brutal. And we're still feeling the effects of them. So, you know, with my work, I'm trying to, you know, just bring focus to kind of one chapter at a time and explore through the medium, my primary medium being painting, history paintings that authorize indigenous experience into the canon of art history because it it hasn't existed until now right so you know what are those experiences both present and historical that warrant the authority of a history painting and that's where I, i really find my work fitting into museums and museum cultures because they are the voice of authority Well, what I love about what you were saying is also you touched on the social aspect of museums where that's where people are trained to interact with the world sometimes. That's a space where, you know, some people like to think of them as neutral. Many of us don't because we see them as as vehicles of empire, of many things. Now, that antagonism is sort of built into the institution. Do you feel like you're helping remedy that problem or do you feel like you're sort of expanding the idea of what a museum is how do you see that well i think what's happened is there's been a shift a lot of uh, i mean i'm not the first indigenous artist to Mm -hmm. tackle a museum and to take on the colonial mindset of these museums and they will always be colonial spaces we just have to sort of decenter them decenter that voice of authority so so you think they'll always be colonial spaces there's no way of making them post-colonial I think they're inherently colonial, but you can decenter their point of view and you can offer alternate points of view on, you know, this main trajectory, which kind of comes from Western culture. And it seems to be the point of view that, you know, the museums lends their relationship to the world. So I have talked about decolonizing museums. I think that might be overly ambitious. I think it's really about offering another perspective on these shared histories. I mean, these are all shared experiences. The colonizers have been here for 500 years. We've been sharing and living and occupying, you know, shared lands. And so I really think about it more as uh, decentering. But I really feel that museums are super important, especially for children, because, you know, often children, this is like their first 
experience into history mm-hmm. and you know definitely I, one of the most powerful experiences exactly in and because you know it's so visual and tactile yeah. and there's objects and paintings and for me that was really profound too as a child so i think that museums are are shifting they're in my experience over the past 20 25 years i've started to feel the shift and a lot of that has to do with the advocacy of indigenous curators and artists working with museums to try and push them towards you know more diverse voices and perspectives looking at this shared history so why not just reject museums why interrogate them this way because i think this is something we all think about in our own lives like say do we build our own institutions do we you know do we pursue these or do we help reform and sort of augment and create more narratives within the context of an institution like a museum well you know i think i guess there are different strategies my strategy has been to infiltrate the museum to work with what's already there because they already have this enormous balance of power to begin a museum from scratch takes an enormous amount of energy and resources here we have museums that are shifting many of them have opened their doors and are starting to embrace other perspectives on on our shared history so I believe that, you know, a lot of the art that I take inspiration from is already in the museum. And I have a great admiration for, you know, this grand tradition of history painting that comes from Western culture. And I see great value in that. So I really feel that having my work in the context of these museums also embeds my work with authority. And so I'm having conversations when you have conversations with works from art history It opens dialogue about those works that are often problematic, but it also creates an opportunity for many, many thousands and if not millions of people to be exposed to your work as well. Right. There's been a lot of dialogue in your work with the work of other sort of what people might call modern masters, which are almost always male and always European, it seems. And particularly Picasso shows up in your work quite a bit. But what I always find fascinating about the way you treat it is it's a very clear sort of confrontation with Picasso. It doesn't feel like it's sort of a just referencing. It almost feels like you're literally doing battle with these figures sometimes. Where is that coming from? Well, you know, I've been looking at the history of painting, probably 500 years of the history of painting, watching this trajectory as an outsider, as, a, as an indigenous person, as a Cree person, I can be objective about it and just say, okay, here I am looking at Western culture and watching how they basically turfed, you know, this, this grand tradition of painting in the 19th century, and it kind of got dismantled through modernism and, mm-hmm. you know, got reduced eventually, you know, through cubism down to color field painting and eventually the black square. Right. So, you know, as someone who can just look at that and say, okay, well, this is what you've done to your culture. You've kind of reduced it to this kind of emptiness. And so Picasso fits into that trajectory. He fits into this, this history of this breaking down of this grand tradition of painting. And, you know, I often reference Picasso because he was, you know, he was heterosexual, he was male, you know, people refer to him as a misogynist. And, you know, the the way that he painted the female figure was often painted with such violence. Right. So, you know... Which is something you've dealt with in your own work. Which is something that I've dealt with in my own work and, and using that, using Picasso as just as an allegorical way of thinking about how European culture has been very male driven and how indigenous cultures are often really very female in their structures matriarchal societies and so and also the violence that's perpetrated against our people you know i feel it's like this binary of male and female so and i often talk about this violence against the female spirit so homophobia Mm -hmm. and then you know in canada the the violence perpetrated against indigenous women 
So the Picasso female nudes really, when I use them in my paintings, it's very jarring to see how brutal and violently they are painted when they're juxtaposed with like a Renaissance angel or, or a scene that feels more representational. Right. It's like somehow, I think I want to describe them as they feel like they're wandering into, mm-hmm. you know, another painting. And then you realize how, how badly adapted they are to the world. Do you know? It's sort of like, oh, wait, their legs don't line up. Their, yeah. you know, their eyes are on one side of their face. You yeah, know? they and look these... kind of like burn victims or right. like they've been run over by a truck or something. So that right. the violence is sort of inherent in the way they're painted. And also Francis Bacon's uh, nudes, too. I've been looking at those and, and referencing his as well. Both Picasso and Bacon were also observers of wars. And so they saw firsthand the violence perpetrated against the human body. So I think they're, they're really significant for me to reference in, in this way of talking about violence against indigenous people. And there's one work you've done where a Picasso figure is actually in a hospital bed. Yeah. Sort of recovering. Or, so what are they recovering from? Well, I think they're all casualties of modernity, and that's the title of the video piece that uh, this Picasso nude is lying in this bed. I mean, Europeans were looking at non-European cultures for inspiration and calling it primitivism, and we just happen to be on that side, the receiving end of this term primitivism. So in Casualties of Modernity, Mischief, as this kind of philanthropist, visits the modern wing of this you know, museum, which is essentially a hospital, and different art movements are wheeled out in gurneys, and she has her visitations with them. But uh, the Cubist nude is representative of that kind of the casualties of this trajectory of modernism that took Western art away from its sort of grand traditional roots. You know, I often talk about it as uh, discarding traditions and discarding the the past. So here in North America, we have, uh, as indigenous people, we've been on the receiving end of these values of modernity, which, you know, European modernity, you know, transplanted to North America has been devastating to indigenous people because we didn't want to lose our languages. We didn't want to lose our traditions. And yet those values of modernity have been very useful for Europeans living here because they can just kind of wipe the slate clean here and start with a a fresh slate. But this is not a blank slate or an empty land. This was land that belongs to indigenous people that has been part of our cultures for thousands of years. And so modernity has been very useful in sort of impregnating this idea of amnesia into the people that live here. So even if it's just about erasure of place, you know, the fact that the city of Toronto was once a gathering place for indigenous peoples and you know, they're starting to do land acknowledgements here now, but it's not enough. I mean, you know, that culture of amnesia has been present for a long time, and, and it really has represented a, a very devastating form of erasure. Unlike other contemporary artists, Monkman has a clear antagonism towards Western modernism, and he's been openly critical of the orthodoxy that has guided so much of contemporary art for the last century. I asked him why he thought that veneration for modernism continued, even though we have a fuller picture of its shortcomings. Why do some people cling to that idea? I think it's still just, it's the core of Western art worldview, and it still is very much about that centering of that worldview that I was talking about in museums and and in the culture. And so you really need the other cultures that are the casualties of modernity to step in and say, wait a second, your modernism actually came in and it sort of erased us. And this is the impact that we're feeling from your ideas of modernity, you know, putting our kids in residential schools so that we can, so that indigenous people would, you know, 
basically be assimilated into your culture and forget their own. Mm -hmm. So I think it has Western culture through modernism basically didn't allow for its own renewal by having this kind of very purist idea, a reductionist kind of thinking about the trajectory of its own art forms. And I think that has been problematic. I want to talk about one work in particular, your minimalism work, Mm -hmm. because I think that captures a little bit of this really well. It's sort of a quote-unquote, I'm going to use the word pure, Mm -hmm. white box, but then it sort of reveals itself to be a prison, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with a figure in the middle holding up a feather to a window. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's hard not to read it as minimalism as a prison. It's hard not to sort of read this sort of way. I also think of Tershing Shea and his sort of like prison-like cell in sort of his year-long performances. And there are, of course, other references you can make to that. But I think the essence of it comes down to this idea that somehow the figure seems stuck in this form, you know, that feels otherwise pure. Am I reading that in a no, way I, that... That's, I mean, the, my intention was to really address exactly what you described. In essence, that you know, when you reduce the vocabulary of your art form to just basically a, a black canvas or a white canvas, you know, you've reduced the ability for certain conversations. There's no narrative. I mean, you've really stripped away everything. Now, some people would argue that, in fact, you've expanded it because then you've allowed for people to transplant anything onto it. So that's really the the thinking behind it. And that is true, in effect. But with that piece, I was really thinking about how prison becomes, it is minimalism, because you're, you're living in a jail cell, and the only way to really transcend that space is through your spiritual or mental faculties to, you know, mm-hmm. so spiritual transcendence will happen in these environments, and it does. And we have a disproportionate number of indigenous people uh, in our, in it, represented in all of our penitentiaries and prisons across the country here. So up to 90%, for instance, in places like Kenora. So that's a huge problem. 90%? And, yeah, and it's a, it's a national crisis that we have so many indigenous people locked up in our prisons. And that was really what I wanted to address with this piece, was just the fact that we, we have a crisis of incarceration and how that really stems from all of these colonial policies and it begins with the institutionalization of our peoples. Foster care, you know, people taken in the 60s scoop and put into foster care. Well, those vulnerable people are more likely to fall through the cracks and end up in prison. So, so many indigenous people have just never been outside of an, one of the colonial institutions. Right. We've gone straight from foster care straight so, into prison. So, so is minimalism a colonial institution? I think of it as a colonial institution because it's it's basically it's kind of almost the dead end of western art culture. Right. Right. So, where do you go from there? And I think now the conversation becomes about just purely the idea, but then that closes it off for certain interpretations. Monkman's newest commission may reveal a more expansive view of his vision. This December, He'll unveil two major paintings for the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Grand Hall. The project is highly anticipated, and it's sure to build on the themes of colonization, sexuality, and loss that has preoccupied his work from the beginning. Well, again, with a museum like the Met, I mean, they have such an incredible collection of Western art history, but also objects from all over the world. So you really got a a museum that is embracing world history. So it's a fascinating collection. 
And what I love to do is create conversations in a museum within their collection of material that comes from different departments and different parts of the world. You know, that's the kind of collection that I really like to work with because it's very broad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they approached me wanting to have to open conversations about their collection. And I think that like I said, is a really significant turning point in how museums are thinking about how they represent their collections to the world. And it really represents the future because the whole world is represented in these museums and therefore the conversations that, you know, being had about those collections should really be representative of all the different cultures from around the world. And I'm grateful that they're acknowledging that an Indigenous person is one of the first to, to be having conversation because there's been so much erasure in the United States about their the first people, the Indigenous people. So I think it's a very important turning point, I think, for, for the country. How about in terms of, because, you know, when I'm often talking to Indigenous artists, one of the things that always comes up is the fact that all Indigenous artists get sort of grouped together, whether it's First Nations or Native American. But there are so many traditions and there are so many different conversations happening at the same time. How do you function in that kind of way, where you still retain your specificity and your own sort of connection to this history while not being subsumed into this sort of bigger category that in its own way sometimes erases that difference? Well, I think, you know, those large group exhibitions really try to have, again, a range to represent the diverse voices of Indigenous people that are here on North Mm -hmm. America. And, and, you know, most of those exhibitions that I've been in have really tried to just show this range of different voices. I've rarely felt that, um, you know, I would lose my own perspective in there, you know, as a Cree person. And I really have gone back to learning my own language to really reference how Cree thinking is embedded in the language and how that informs how Cree people think about the world. And I'm currently working on a mischiefs memoir with my co-writer, Giselle Gordon, and we're stitching together this story of my alter ego, mischief Eagle Testicle, from her beginnings as a, as a legendary being. But it runs parallel to Cree cosmology with the other legendary beings that are part of how the Cree see the world worldview. So, can that, you give us a sense of a little bit of that kind of Cree, um, maybe the language or those the different sort of mythologies that sort of how they factor in? Well, you know, one of the things that came up in the book was just Cree laws, Cree laws which have to do with uh, how human beings should live, and uh, there are many Cree laws, but. In thinking about the Cree laws and, and how human beings are supposed to relate to each other, mm-hmm. that really sort of helped shape her purpose. And so the book has really been a very important tool for me to understand who that character really is, even though she kind of emerged in my paintings and that character kind of grew in my work over the years. But the book has been really awesome in terms of really settling her and grounding her in Cree worldview. Is she your response to Duchamp's Rose Célévy? Well, you know, I knew that Duchamp had a, an alter ego as well, but it, it wasn't a direct reference to mm-hmm. Duchamp. But I have referenced Duchamp's Rose Célévy in one of my paintings, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which was an honor dance, actually, to the two-spirited person. So I would say that Mischief actually grew out of a, a desire to honor and to represent who those people two-spirit people were, those people that lived between the male and female binary genders, uh, as Europeans understood them here in North America, in indigenous cultures. So it was, it, was an, it was an opportunity to have a character who could be gender fluid, have both male and female aspects, and to basically refute 
colonization and colonized sexuality, you know, to refute these limited understandings of gender. And there's always humor in your work. Sometimes it's very dark humor. Even, I mean, the name of the exhibition that's still um, touring of yours, Shame and Prejudice. I mean, this sort of like plays off, obviously, Pride and Prejudice, but it gets to the real heart of this, right? Mm -hmm. Of the shame that sort of was imposed or, or, I mean, the shame of European colonies, so many shames, you know, it's not just one thing. And that's what makes it fascinating because it's a layered reading, but that humor is there. And sometimes it's in this sort of the awkwardness of the modernist bodies. Sometimes it's in the sort of like the introduction of drag in this kind of way that seems both absurd, but really kind of confronted in a very serious way. But in an art historical and a museum setting, it sort of transforms and it becomes something different, or at least that's how I see it. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Again, I try and maximize the range of the vocabulary I use in my paintings. But it's also about the impact that it has on people. And when you employ uh, narrative, you are also then engaging the possibility to tell stories which often have emotional, an emotional core or have an emotional impact. And so that just means that you can reach people on different levels. And I, I'm always drawn to art that can trigger you. You'll, you can experience it on just like a visceral level, purely aesthetic level. But there's always like when it has other layers, that's really meaningful. I don't know many artists whose work seems to be both very popular with a general audience, but also very popular with an art crowd, do you know, in the same way as your work does. Now, it seems like something you've definitely cultivated in your work. I think a large part of that has to do with not underestimating my audience and realizing that my audience can be very wide. And so, you know, from school children to senior citizens, I also found that working with a representational language of painting, it meant I could really reach a wide audience. Mm. But because I'm such an art history geek, you know, there's stuff embedded in there for the art historians, for the art people, and that makes it more meaningful for me just as an artist because, I, you know, I, there's just so much great art that has been made. I'd love to kind of riff on it and, and explore it and learn from it. So, you know, when I make a painting, I basically make a painting that I can look at for hours or days. So if it satisfies that in me, I know it will satisfy that in other people. So that's really when I, when I make artwork, it's got to really please me and engage me for a really long time. So that's kind of my, my measure for, for how I make the work. So let's talk a little bit about the project you did, The Gardener, The Rise and Fall of Civilization. That piece really did kind of encapsulate so many of the different things you've worked on. But you also grappled with ceramic a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you recreated the famous bull sculpture by Picasso, the bull head. And you also created this kind of like pulverized mass of ceramic on the floor, which, you know, has its own art historical references today with the Ai Weiwei, mm -hmm. you know, the falling urn, and so many other things. And I know you've talked about in that piece, the sort of like the bones of the buffalo that have sort of been pulverized in the way like after they fall and they sort of become their, their own. And of course, bone china is made from that type of thing. Now, how did that work fit into your bigger body of work? Because I'm seeing it as a pretty important work and I'm curious how you um, view it. Well, you know, I, again, it definitely fits within this trajectory of my work exploring museum dioramas. So that, that piece was probably the closest piece that I've ever made that came to referencing those dioramas that I looked at when I was a kid in the Manitoba Museum because they were bison, it was a bison hunt or buffalo hunt. But, you know, 
I was interested in just the, the flow of our cultures together, how you know Europeans arrived here and we've been living with Europeans on this continent for 500 years. So we share our histories and both come from ancient cultures, you know. So when, when you see the drawings on the walls surrounding the Buffalo Jump, there are cave drawings from, from France and there are also pictographs uh, and drawings from North America as well. So it was really about trying to communicate that we are, we're all human beings and we're, we're in this together and, and we share our histories. Um, the broken ceramics was also referencing, you know, archaeology and how there are remnants of our ancient civilizations here that are still, um, you know, being discovered and dug out of the ground. So there were a number of different uh, references in that piece, but I feel like it was an opportunity to do something on a large scale that could really sort of push that idiom of the museum diorama into a, to a bigger scale. I'm curious if there's a specific context to Canada that you think people who aren't here may not understand as a working artist, as a working Indigenous artist in the institutions of Canada, as part of an art scene that, you know, is many things. Well, I think I would say that in general, the audiences here, they're further along in terms of understanding the colonial project because the museums here have been making efforts for a little bit longer. I mean, it all depends on where you go, but sometimes, you know, in the States, you see museums that just haven't, they just don't really get it yet. And so I think Indigenous people were in the headlines often here in Canada, which is different than the United States. In Europe, they don't have any Indigenous people, they don't, so they don't understand at all. There's quite a disconnect there in terms of understanding what it means to be an Indigenous person. They don't understand really what it means to be colonized And I think the voices have been loud enough in Canada for long enough that people are starting to advance in terms of their understanding and appreciation of where Indigenous people are coming from. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but, you know, there have been museums in this country that have made significant efforts to opening their doors to Indigenous curators. And this is where we start to see the shift happening. And, you know, I'm on the board of the Gardener now, and I'm on the board of the Glenbow Museum. And the fact that they have Indigenous people on the boards of a museum means that the change can happen internally as well. And this is where we're going to start seeing, you know, a shift in this decentering of these colonial institutions. A special thanks to Mark Pritchard of Warp Records for providing the music for this episode. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to the first episode of this special four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum in Toronto, Canada. Future episodes will be released throughout the summer. Thanks again to Kent Monkman for joining me on this episode and to all of you for listening. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you share this with a friend or left a review on iTunes. For more, visit us online at hyperallergic.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.